would, grab a Bible and go with me to Zechariah chapter 5. We are coming now to the sixth night vision, which is a vision of a flying scroll. Don't worry, they get better. So why don't we read together in uh, verse 1. We'll go to verse 4 today. This is the Lord's word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. Father, I pray that you would use your word to strengthen your people. I pray that your word would come with conviction and in the joy of the Holy Spirit it would be received that we might walk in the fear of the Lord all our days, turning away from sin which brought the curse upon our Lord and turning to him who has loved us with such great love to live for him and enjoy him all of our days. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in middle school, a friend of mine took me to one of the high school basketball games. His older sister was playing. But instead of watching the game, we thought we'd find something more exciting to do. So we went outside the gym, walked around the building, and noticed that the windows to the girls' locker rooms were cracked open at the top. They were up high just to provide ventilation, but there was also a large tree beside them. So my friend got the idea that we should gather up some pebbles, climb the tree... See if we couldn't scare somebody inside, tossing them through the window, and then we'd run. We made it halfway up that tree and suddenly found ourselves the subjects of a blinding spotlight that was not coming from the building, but from behind us. And there was a voice, too, shouting, Get down from there! The plan to run at this point failed. And upon climbing down, we met a police officer who had been following us since we left the building. And as he suspected, he now had reason to correct us. He firmly instructed us to return to my my friend's parents and mercifully let us go. But I'll never forget the feeling of being exposed before justice. It seemed all-consuming. No escape. I was caught. 
And yet that little experience I had with the police officer pursuing me and exposing my law-breaking is nothing compared to God's Word pursuing and exposing lawbreakers. The passage before us paints a picture of God's all-consuming covenant word. In particular, several symbols come together to paint a picture of God's curse hunting down the lawbreakers and consuming them until they are no more. Even when they try to hide, His word finds them, it exposes them, and destroys them. I want to look today at four details with you from this picture of a flying scroll and pretend right now that we've looked at a painting titled A Flying Scroll. And now as your tour guide, I'm going to point out several details in Zechariah's painting that help you understand the overall message. So let's zoom in now on detail number one. Zechariah sees a scroll. A scroll. Scrolls like this appear three other places in the Old Testament. In Psalm 40, verse 7, the scroll is a reference to the written law of Moses. And then later on, Jeremiah writes out God's words on a scroll. And the word is a word of judgment against Israel according to the law of Moses. And then Ezekiel also gets a vision of a scroll. And in that scroll were written words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Again, a message of judgment against Israel. If you go through and read those judgments, all these judgments are in accordance with the law of Moses. So the scroll contains God's written revelation that reaches back to the law of Moses and applies that law to the current situation. The same is happening here. In fact, notice that the scroll has writing on both sides of it. Verse 3 says, For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on The other side, this is just like the stone tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. Exodus 32 verse 15 says that the stone tablets had the commandments written on both sides, on the front and on the back. So we're dealing with a covenant document here of sorts, and in particular, the law of Moses as it's being reapplied to the lawbreakers in Zechariah's day. And when the law of Moses is applied to the lawbreakers, it curses them. That's why verse 3 identifies the scroll as the curse that goes out. And just to warn you parents, um, I'm going to use the curse word a lot today. We were going through this. Last night with my children, and Levi looks up and said, Dad, you're using the curse word a lot. I was looked at Rachel like, am I using, did I curse? Oh, the, the curse word. All right. So verse 3 identifies this scroll as the curse. The law of Moses as covenant had both blessings and curses. 
Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. If you obeyed the law, God would bless you. If you disobeyed the law, God would curse you. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 uh, is a good example of this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So the scroll represents the law of Moses. It's God's law covenant that contains curses when it's not obeyed. Detail number two. Check out the dimensions of this scroll. Uh, Verse two, its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. That's 30 feet long, 15 feet tall. We're talking about a scroll just a bit bigger than most billboards which is rather foreboding if you think about this thing containing a curse. But there's something peculiar about these dimensions. It takes me back, at least to, the, to Solomon's temple. Uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3, it says that the vestibule, in, uh, the, 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 the porch-like area in front of the, the holy place, it was 20 cubits long and 10 cubits deep. So it seems to be some connection with the temple. But even more likely, since this scroll is also flying, are the dimensions of the two massive cherubim that stood on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant in Solomon's temple. And you can see the image now on the screen, tucked back there, uh, right there, those two big guys. So these were two golden cherubs, and they were ten cubits tall, and each had a wingspan of ten cubits wide. They stood beside each other like this, wingtip to wingtip, and they stretched from one end of the holy place to the other end of the holy place. So ten cubits tall, two cherubs times ten cubits apiece in wingspan equals twenty cubits wide. So these dimensions seem to recall the temple and even further into the temple, the most holy place where God manifested his presence above the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant that contained the two tablets. What's the point? The point is that the scroll which contains the curse is coming from the presence of of God in his temple. The whole message to this point, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, everything has been about God coming to rebuild his temple and to flood his temple with his presence. But now what we're getting is this, wherever God dwells, sin isn't welcome. Wherever God dwells, sin isn't welcome. Sin only invites his curse. And so his curse is now going out from his presence to seek out the evildoer. Verse 4 even says explicitly that that God is the one sending out. It's coming forth from God. Detail number three. The scroll is flying It's flying. 
And a few things, a few things here lead me to believe that it, it doesn't just mean it's open, like, like it's, as if it's unrolled and sort of flittering in the wind. Um, to begin, I just mentioned its association with the golden cherubim. We've got some massive wings. Um, also, verse 4 says that the Lord sends out the curse, and the curse seems to somehow be pursuing the lawbreakers until destroying them. So it's not just sitting there flittering in the wind, it's doing something. It's pursuing folks. Uh, something else to note is that within the curses of the law of Moses, we, we actually find this kind of imagery. This, this is Deuteronomy 28, 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. This pursuit language is in, in the overtaking language. It's hunting vocabulary. Uh, the curse will track you down, in other words. We, we saw this in chapter 1, verse 6. And then we get this in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. So here's what I think is going on. It's actually he's actually borrowing language from the curse in the law of Moses to describe and to depict the curse itself. It doesn't leave God's presence in a passive manner. It doesn't go out and fall flat without any effect. It leaves God's presence like a hawk swooping down for the kill. And that leads us right into detail number four, which is the purpose for which God sends out the curse. He sends out the curse to destroy the lawbreakers. He sends out the curse to destroy the lawbreakers. Let's read verse three again. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. So everyone in Israel is accountable, in other words. God isn't arbitrarily picking and choosing. He, he curses everyone who deserves it in the whole land. It goes on, For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So two big offenses are in view, stealing and swearing falsely. And when you read verse 4, you find it's not merely swearing falsely to your neighbor that's in view. Verse 4 says that it enters the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. That is, by God's name. They're taking the name of the Lord in vain, treating him lightly. So, what are the offenses? Stealing and swearing falsely by God's name. Two offenses that represent both sides of the Ten Commandments. Swearing falsely by God's name pulls from the first half of the Ten Commandments, dealing with our vertical relationship with God. Stealing pulls from the second half of the Ten Commandments, dealing with our horizontal relationships with other people. The point isn't to suggest that these two offenses are the most frequent in Israel or even to suggest that these two deserve the most punishment. The point is that these two offenses represent what the whole law stands for, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the problem here is that people have been 
wrongly acquitted for living contrary to those two things. They're not loving their neighbor and they're lying to God and they've been wrongly acquitted. But God is saying he will see to it that their sins will not go unpunished. They will be cleaned out. Our passage here reflects the very character of God that we see revealed in Exodus 34. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but He will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. Which is what we find happening in verse 4. He says, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So there's no hiding from this curse, no getting away with your evil deeds. God's curse doesn't miss a single lawbreaker when he sends it out. But why use this imagery of a house? A few reasons, perhaps. If the people in Israel are stealing from others, or more accurately, when we get to chapter 8, they're not giving what they do have to help those in need and thus stealing from them. What are they doing with their money and their possessions? They're building themselves some pretty fancy houses. Their wealth only serves themselves at the expense of others. On top of that comes the imagery of God's curse entering their house to consume them. Where else have we seen God's curse doing that in Scripture? The Exodus, right? If you didn't have the blood on your doorpost, God's curse of death entered your house and destroyed your firstborn child. The curse is being depicted in the same way. His curse, this curse in Zechariah goes out, but now it's to destroy everybody in the household along with all their belongings. And one more thing up to this point in Zechariah, the focus of chapters 1 to 4 has been God building His house, the temple in Jerusalem. And what he's saying here is that his house cannot coexist with the house of lawbreakers. When his house goes up, the house of lawbreakers goes down. And he will bring them and their houses down one by one by one with this curse. The only house that will be left standing on the last day is God's house, God's temple. God's kingdom. So that's the vision. God sends out his covenant curse from his presence to seek out and expose and then destroy the lawbreakers until there's nothing left of them. That's part of his mission and goal as he's establishing his new Jerusalem. 
And you might be saying, good night, that's a terrifying message to Israel. After all these chapters on God returning and blessing His people, who could possibly stand when this thing finally goes out, when this curse finally goes out? None of them have loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of them have always loved their neighbor as they're required. I mean, the exile made that plenty clear. And then it begins to dawn on you that the same terror you feel for Israel, it begins to expose you too because you realize, wait a minute, I... I'm just as much a lawbreaker. I've stolen from others. I've defamed the name of my God. James says, if you break one commandment, it's like breaking all of them because the same God gives every one of them. And you realize that means the curse will find me too. That's how this message affects us. Zechariah's message is not just for Israel, it's for the world. That's why Isaiah 24 says, this is well before Zechariah, he he uses language similar to Zechariah 5 here, but it applies that curse to the whole world. Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, "...the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant." What's the result? Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So the threat of the curse in vision 6 isn't just for Israel. It's for the whole world. God will send out His curse, and His curse will consume all the lawbreakers. And eventually, this is actually fulfilled, the book of Revelation says, in the lake of fire itself. God's new Jerusalem will finally stand, and all the unclean lawbreakers will be consumed forever under His curse outside the city without relief. But this is why we love and sing and wonder and treasure and preach and announce the cross of Jesus Christ. Is it not? Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Because what we find here is a lawbreaker's only escape from the curse of God's law. Vision 6 will eventually be fulfilled and God's covenant curse will fall on humanity. But the unspeakable beauty of God's grace is that for countless multitudes, God took that curse and with it consumed His own Son, Jesus, in our place. Read with me Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Sound familiar? I quoted that earlier from Deuteronomy 27. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ, He's the one that did all of them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here is our escape, friends. We are all lawbreakers, and we are under a curse because of our lawbreaking, because of our sin. But before sending his curse to consume us, God sent Jesus to be consumed for us. When Jesus suffered under God's curse, he didn't suffer for his own lawbreaking because he was without sin. He loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself, even when that obedience to God and that love for his neighbor meant that he would suffer under the wrath of God in the place of lawbreakers. The one who didn't deserve the curse suffered under the curse that those who did deserve the curse might be freed from the curse. And that is good news. That's why we sing. That's why you sang earlier. And that's why we announce, that's what we announce to the, to the world. God still plans to consume lawbreakers with his curse at the end of history. But the good news is this. For everybody who trusts in Jesus in history, that means today, their curse is no more. There will be no curse sent out to consume them at the end of history. Only gracious love sent out to glorify them. Let's be clear. God did not clear the guilty ever. He punished the guilty in his son. If you trust in Jesus, your guilt, your sin, your curse is over. And that means you no longer belong to the community of lawbreakers still under God's curse. You belong to the community of law fulfillers under God's grace. Which is what the rest of Galatians teaches. Not only did Jesus meet all the law's demands for you, but now, risen from the dead, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And by walking in the Spirit, we fulfill the law of love, or the law of Christ, or the royal law of liberty, if you want to use James's language. Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Rather, you fulfill the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6.2. As the Spirit moves you to love. In other words, you don't steal anymore. Because when you have God, you have everything. Your heart is content, satisfied. I don't need other people's stuff. You don't steal because you see in the cross that your Heavenly Father really does love you. And He really does care for you. And He really will meet all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. And so instead of stealing, now you give and you give and you give as your, go- as your God has so graciously given to you. And will keep giving to you. And you don't lie anymore because your God is true. You don't swear falsely by His name because you have seen in the cross that your God loves justice. He loves righteousness. And He loves truth. So rather than, you, you, as Paul says, you speak the truth to one another in love. 
Your words go out not to defame God's name, but to bring glory to the God who saved you from the curse. That's life in the new community, according to Galatians and Ephesians. So as the new community who celebrates our deliverance from the curse of God's law, what does this sixth vision leave us with? And I'll mention just a few, just four things today. All of this stemming from what I just laid out, what Christ has done for us. First of all, we must not tolerate sin in ourselves or in the church. We must not tolerate sin in ourselves or in the church. As mentioned earlier, wherever God dwells, sin is not welcome. Sin's got to go. And the amazing thing is that in and through the gospel, God says that the Holy Spirit indwells us both individually and corporately. If God's living here, sin's got to go. Sin's got to go here. Sin's got to go here. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that God dwells in individual believers. And Paul is using this to say that this has implications for how you use your body parts. All of your body parts. Even the most intimate of your body parts. Our body parts, whether eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, feet, brain, stomach, whatever you want to add to the list... They are not to be used for sin, but to bring God glory. Why? Because God dwells here. God dwells here, and therefore sin is not welcome. There's no welcome mat for sin. And then 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that God also dwells in the corporate church. so So the whole body of believers. And sin can't be tolerated here either. This is why we affirm the New Testament's teaching on our mutual accountability to one another and ongoing discipleship and the pursuit of holiness and the practice of church discipline when we're out of sync with those things. This vision of life is very different from today's society. In today's society, sin, because the world doesn't have a biblical mindset, sin regularly goes undetected. And even when it's detected, sin is then tolerated. And even when it's not tolerated, the punishment is often skewed and shallow and has nothing to do with God's glory. The church of Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast to the world when it comes to how we view and deal with sin. All sin we see according to the Bible, is a horrific affront to God's glory. It costs the Son of God His life, and it will take an eternity for sinners to pay for it when they do not trust in Christ. It's not a small thing. And we know it's not a small thing. Because one sin sent this world spiraling into all of its corruption. When you read the news headlines, you shouldn't just think of how terrible and destructive sin is out there. You should think of how terrible and destructive sin is in here and in here. That's just a, the world is a parable of sin playing out. The difference for the church, though, is that we can actually identify sin because we love the Bible and we have the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. We can identify it. We also have the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
with one another. Once sin is identified, we can truly appreciate justice because we can look, look and point each other to the cross of Jesus Christ where our sins were bore and where God's wrath was poured out. And we also have the power to actually overcome sin because the Holy Spirit is, is living inside of us, empowering us to walk in the truth of the gospel day in and day out. And that's way more hopeful than the world's view of sin. They can't even rightly diagnose the problem. The church can. And through Christ overcomes. So this is the point where God dwells. He won't let his people grow indifferent to sin. Being intolerant of sin doesn't mean we act harshly towards others or pretend like we have no sin of our own. But it at least means that we see sin for what it really is and we work together to get it out so that we can look more and more like our Savior. Secondly, we must live to fulfill the law of love as individuals and as a church. This, is a, uh, this comes from the implied war- warning that we get in verse 3, uh, that God's curse goes out to seek out the one who steals from his neighbor. There's an implied warning there. Because it's saying God hates the thief. He hates stealing that's meant to then drive the community of faith to repentance in this area. If you want to go home and read Zechariah chapter 7 and 8, that's exactly what he's doing. Pointing them to repentance in this very specific area so that we love instead of steal. Paul picks this up too for the church in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the gospel we see there changes thieves into hardworking, honest, sacrificial givers. That's what the gospel does. It's a transformation that takes place. So the question to you is, and, to, and to me is, how are we fighting to worship God rightly by loving our neighbors fervently? And thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, we should seriously evaluate ways in which we might be stealing from others and then perverting justice in order to ease our conscience. Uh, we can't think of stealing merely in terms of what we're not taking from others. The Bible mostly teaches us to think in terms of how we are giving to others. What doesn't belong to us to begin with. So yes, there is active exploitation of others, like when we avoid taxes using deception and bending the rules, or like when we abuse the welfare system, or when we take advantage of pirated software or download music and movies without making sure to support the artists behind them, or like when we slack off at work instead of working hard to benefit our employer and serve others, or maybe if you happen to own a business, like when we underpay our employees. That may be active ways we exploit others, but there's also passive forms of theft. Here's an example from the scripture. Like when God blesses you with a really healthy crop and you hoard it all for yourself instead of leaving margins so that the poor can eat. 
That's a real tangible example from the Bible. It wasn't that you actively took, you didn't go and like rob the guy. You just didn't care to meet his needs, right? Just, I want this all for myself. You didn't even care to think of the poor. So ignoring the poor might be a passive form of theft since you're keeping for yourself what God gave you to give to those in need. Or maybe there are ways we've simply disregarded the broken in our neighborhoods or we failed to be a voice for the most vulnerable among us like orphans and and widows and those trapped in things like prostitution. The elders and the finance team will be taking some initial steps to address some of these deficits in our own corporate life together. And you can hear more about that at the members meeting when we discuss the budget. My point is that we've been brought into a community that lives to fulfill the law of Christ as the Spirit works among His people. And this is, this is really the way James, James puts it like this in James Chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So we see those two things coming together again here, just like we did in Zechariah, stealing and blasphemy. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And I would say many of you are doing well in this regard. But in our affluent American culture, I imagine there's room for some serious evaluation. We certainly found it in our own lives as elders and when we looked at the budget of our church. Third, as we go about fulfilling this law of love, we must warn other lawbreakers and tell them about Christ. God's covenant curse will seek out all the lawbreakers in order to destroy them and their only hope is in Jesus Christ. You see... There is another scroll mentioned in the Bible. I only gave you the three that were mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. It's got some of the same characteristics here, written on both sides. The difference is that Zechariah's scroll is open. Revelation's is closed with seven seals. And as God's plan in history continues to unfold, Jesus Christ is taking the scroll and he's cutting the seven seals one by one by one. And when he breaks the sixth of the seventh seal, it says this, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the, po- and the powerful And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for their great day, for the great day of their wrath has come 
and who can stand. In other words, they, just like the folks can't hide in Zechariah 5, these folks cannot hide either. What God's word says, he will bring it into effect. If he promises to send out his curse on the lawbreakers, then we must see ourselves as the Apostle Paul also saw himself. I am under obligation, he said. Under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. To do what? Preach the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That doesn't mean you should pound yourself with guilt for every day that passes without sharing the gospel. Or for every time you share the gospel and somebody doesn't believe, salvation belongs to the Lord. But it does mean that we must be faithful to share with every opportunity the Lord gives us. And we must take initiatives in rescuing the perishing as Christ rescued us. If you're here today and you don't know the forgiveness of your sins. And you constantly walk around feeling the weight of God's curse upon you. And you feel that God's word has exposed you as one who still sits under God's curse, know that there is freedom from that curse in Jesus Christ. Believe on Him today and be saved. It's better to be exposed now and repent than to be exposed later without chance of repentance. Trust in Jesus now and then act on it first by being baptized. If you want to know more about that, we'd be more than happy to talk with you after the service. Finally, we must remain hopeful that injustice won't last forever. We must remain hopeful that injustice won't last forever. We are lawbreakers in need of incredible mercy from God. And God has had mercy on us by sending Christ to redeem us from his curse. But never should we understand the cross to mean that God overlooks sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He punishes sin. For all those who believe, he punishes their sin in the cross of Christ. But for all those who do not believe and who continue to make themselves enemies of God and enemies of God's people, God will punish their sin in the lake of fire on the last day. Enemies of the cross may be wrongly acquitted by modern society, but they will not be wrongly acquitted before God. So when you see world leaders scheming against Christ and his kingdom, when you read the stories from the voice of the martyrs or open doors, or you hear the reports like I did from some of our own missionaries this week that two Christian workers were intentionally sought out and murdered nearby, or when you see a planned parenthood demonizing a Christian ethic of the unborn, we who are sinned against can, say, can take some measure of comfort in the fact that nobody will get away with their sin. Nobody. God isn't overlooking evil in this world. And that comfort ought to come with, with brokenness on our part and tears while we always hold out hope for, of repentance for them and, and eternal life for our enemies. But their sins against us cannot lead us to despair 
or to take justice into our own hands. Why? Because God is not overlooking them. And He will deal with them, either in the cross or in the lake of fire. God will do justice far better than we ever could. And on that day, sin will be no more. Law-breaking will be no more. And the earth will finally know the glory and the peace for which it cries now. Shall we pray together?